Today's sermon text is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Let's go before the Lord. Father, the heart of my prayer this morning is that you would show us the glory of Jesus. And I ask you that by faith, and I thank you by faith for what you will do. You had a heart to reveal your glory to Peter, James, and John, and I'm sure you have a heart to reveal your glory to us. So please, Lord, use your word today. Use your Holy Spirit and open up our eyes to see the magnitude of who you are. I ask for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, if you look at Luke chapter 9, actually in verse 28, you'll see there that Luke tells us about a day when Peter took G, uh, Peter, Jesus took Peter, James, and John high up on top of a sacred mountain. Neither he nor the other gospel writers tell us what time of day it was when they set out, but in my mind's eye, I imagine that it was late afternoon or, or possibly early evening. Whatever the case may be, When they reached the peak of that mountain, Jesus entered into a season of prayer, as was his custom, but this time, as he was praying, Luke tells us that the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes began to shine with a dazzling light. Jesus Christ was beaming with the glory of his Father that he had shared with his Father from before the foundation of the world, and as he stood there praying and beaming with glory... Suddenly there appeared with him Moses on one side and Elijah on the other and they too were shining with the glory of God. And Luke tells us that they began to speak to one another. They had a a conversation up there on that mountain. Evidently, the night had fallen upon this scene because Luke tells us that Peter, James, and John were in a deep sleep. But something about all of this woke them up. And as they began to wake, they looked, and there they saw the glory of Christ, and they saw two men standing with him. Luke doesn't tell us that they knew who the two men were. Luke doesn't tell us that they heard any conversation uh, uh, transpiring between the three of them. He just says that they looked up, and they saw the glory, and they saw these three. And they were stunned, absolutely stunned. And I think we would have been too. Peter was never at a loss for words. In fact, he always seemed to think out loud. He always seemed to think that his words were going to be the solution to any given situation. And so as Elijah and Moses began to depart from that place, Peter said, Lord, it's a good thing that we're here. Like Jesus needed Peter to tell him that it was a good thing that they were there. And he said, Lord, shall we build three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah? Peter was afraid Peter was processing what was going on. Peter was just trying to respond to what he was seeing. And God was so gracious to him. Because even as he was speaking, the scripture says, a cloud began to envelop the disciples. Now Mark tells us in his gospel that this 
cloud was bright, brightly lit. And so it's no surprise that the disciples were afraid as this cloud began to envelop them. But when it had completely enveloped them, they heard the voice of God booming out of the cloud. They heard the audible voice of God. It must have sounded like the great clap of thunder. must have sounded like the roaring of many waters when God the Father spoke and said these simple, simple words. He said, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And of course, he's speaking of Jesus, not Moses, not Elijah, the great lawgiver, the great prophet, but he's got Jesus in mind, and he said, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Centuries before this, you remember that Israel was wandering in the desert, and they gathered at the foot of another mountain named Mount Sinai. And they too saw a cloud cover the top of that mountain. It was a visible sign of the glory and the presence of God. And out of that cloud, they saw flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. And out of that cloud, they heard the earth-shaking voice of God. And when God spoke, he gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them the law. And although the law is good, the speech of God on that day actually condemned his people because in and of themselves, they were unable to keep the simplest commands of God. Really, when you boil down the Ten Commandments, all God said was love me with everything you've got and love one another. That's it. Life in God is so simple, but our hearts are so corrupt. And so the giving of any command ended up in the condemnation of his people. Here, on the glorious mountain of transfiguration, the voice of God boomed again from the cloud and exalted the glory of Jesus Christ. The voice of God boomed again from the cloud and pointed to the one who was chosen, who was about to fulfill the law, who was about to lay down his life, who was about to be killed on a cross, who was about to be buried in the earth, who was about to rise again from the dead, who was about to ascend to the mountain of God, to the true mountain of God, where he would be seated at the right hand of the throne forever. In fact, Luke actually tells us what Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking about. Whether Peter and the others heard it or not, I don't know, probably not. But Luke says that what they were talking about was the departure Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They were talking about his life, death, burial, resurrection. And now here comes the booming voice of God saying, this is the one. This is the one who is going to fulfill the law for you. This is the one who came to do what you cannot do for yourselves. This is the one through whom I will inaugurate a new covenant. Behold, the new has come and the old is already fading away. Beloved, this time on Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration is like Mount Sinai, take two. They're deeply, deeply connected. The Father's speech stunned the disciples into silence. And as the cloud of his presence rolled away, they lifted up their eyes to see Jesus, and they did see Jesus. But the other two were now gone, and Jesus was looking again normal. He looked like they knew him. He was no longer beaming with the glory of God as he had been a few moments before. And and both Matthew and Mark tell us that at this time, Jesus commanded these three to keep silent about this until a future time. And in fear and trembling, in obedience to their master, they did just that. 
Now, if we're to understand the fullness of what's going on here in this scene, we have to turn our attention back to the beginning of chapter 9, back to the day when Jesus commissioned his disciples and sent them out on a mission for the sake of his name. You may remember from last week that in chapter 6, verse 19, just after Christ had appointed the 12 apostles, Luke tells us that power came out from him. And we saw last week that power came out from Jesus in at least six ways. First of all, power came out from him to teach with unusual authority. Power came out from him to heal diseases. Power came out from him to raise the dead. Power came out from him to deliver people from demons. Power came out from him to forgive sins. Power came out from him even to control the very forces of nature. Power came out from Christ. And now here at the beginning of chapter 9, he is granting some of his power, some of his authority to his beloved apostles. Now he grants them power and authority to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He's giving them power and authority to live the kind of life that he had been showing to them, that he had been living with them. From the middle of chapter 6 to the beginning of chapter 9, I told you last week the, the apostles were essentially in boot camp with Jesus, and now it was time for them to go into training phase 2. The Lord wanted him them to walk in utter dependence upon him, and so Luke is clear. He gave them power and authority. They were to do what he called them to do on his power, not on theirs. In order to teach them what it means to live by faith, you'll notice as well in the beginning of chapter 9 that he commanded them to take nothing with them on this journey. Now some of you have been to other parts of the world. Can you imagine getting on a plane and going to India, China, Africa, South America, wherever, and taking absolutely nothing with you but your passport, of course? You get off the plane, you get into the country, and you have nothing. You have no money, you have no extra clothes, you have nothing but the clothes on your back and the Bible that's inside your heart. That's all you have. Well, that's what Jesus told them to do. He said, I don't even want you to take a change of clothes. That's what he meant when he said, don't take a second tunic. For them, that's a change of clothes. He was trying to teach them to live by faith in him. That's what this is about. He's saying, when you go into a city, I want you to trust that I'm going to open up somebody's heart and home to you, and they're going to receive you in, and I'm going to provide for everything that you need. You don't need the physical things of this world to feel secure. You follow me by faith, and I'll keep you secure. And if you go into a town and nobody there will take you in, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to shake the dust off your feet in testimony against them and I will deal with them later at the judgment. But do not take this as personal rejection because it's not about you. They're rejecting me, not you. And don't take this as a sign that I am not blessing your ministry because it's not about that. They are rejecting me. It's not your problem. Shake the dust off of your feet and move on. Eyes on God, face forward. Trust me, live by faith. That's what he's trying to teach them. Live by faith. Beloved, faith is something you can hear about in a classroom and you can agree with this point and that point, but faith is something you can only learn in, in the trenches of life, amen? You can only learn, truly learn that God provides when you are without and then God provides. So Jesus has them in school. He has them in training. And he's trying to teach them, truly to teach them, to live by faith. That's what this is all about. Now, I don't know how the apostles felt. I know I would be pretty nervous to borderline scared as I went out. 
but they did go out in obedience to their master. They went from one village to another and they preached the truth of God and they demonstrated the power of God by the power of the Holy Spirit and for the glory of his name. They practiced the same model that they had seen their master practice for all these years or months. They preached the gospel. They demonstrated the power of the gospel. They brought glory to God. Gospel, power, glory. This is what characterizes Jesus' way of ministry, and this is the way of life that the Lord is trying to teach them now. His way of ministry wasn't just something he wanted other people to admire. It's something he wanted his followers to emulate, and so he's teaching them to preach and to demonstrate and to bring all the glory to God. Now, at this point... You'll notice that Luke inserts a paragraph about Herod. They call him there a tetrarch. That name means a governor. He was the governor of that area. And at first it seemed to me like this was a little bit of a random insertion. I asked the Lord earlier this week why this piece of text was there. And it occurred to me at some point that Jesus had been out in the villages and now his followers were out there in the villages preaching about this kingdom of God that was infiltrating the world. And so it's no wonder that a man with political power would feel threatened by this kingdom that was being preached. And so he wanted to see Jesus. Whatever he thought, whatever his motives are, though, Luke tells us here what the people thought about Jesus, and it's pretty amazing to me. The people knew that he was no usual man. They thought that he was one of maybe three people. They thought that he might be John the Baptist, who was actually raised from the dead. They knew John had been killed, but there was so much power coming out from Christ that they thought John may have been raised from the dead. Or they said, no, he's Elijah raised from the dead. Or they said, no, he's one of the prophets of old like Isaiah, like Ezekiel, like Daniel, raised from the dead. So apparently, the people believed in the resurrection of Jesus. They just got the timing wrong. They got the details wrong. They knew this man was a true man of God. They knew the power was pouring through him. And as for Herod, I don't know what he thought, but I know he wanted to see Jesus face to face. And soon enough, he would do just that. When the 12 returned from this first missionary journey, They processed with Jesus all that had taken place and then he led them to this little town on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. The town was called Bethsaida and it was a quiet place where people would go to get away. It wasn't exactly a resort town like you and I would think about it, but it was a place to go and get away. It was a quiet place away from the crowds and Jesus was leading them there, I think, to teach them to follow his example. You may remember from chapter five, verse 16, Luke teaches us that Jesus would often withdraw to desolate places to be with his father. Jesus, as a man, was a man of prayer. And I take this to mean, Luke's statement in chapter five, that is, I take his statement to mean that daily, weekly, monthly, Jesus was always drawing away to be with God. He was drawing upon the resources of his father to do the will of his father. And now he's still in training mode, beloved. He's drawing his apostles away because he's teaching them a way of life. You go out, you do ministry, you withdraw and come away with your father. Lean upon your father. Learn from your father. Be filled up by your father. Do life with your father. Mission with Christ is not primarily about the mission. It's primarily about having fellowship with him and then doing what he calls us to do. Amen? I believe he called them away to pray. While they were there, the crowd was searching for them, and eventually the crowd found them. Crowds have a way of doing that. 
This likely impinged upon their time of prayer and recovery, but Jesus is so merciful and gracious. He just amazes me. He easily could have found a way to hide the disciples away. He easily could have said, not now. He could have done anything he wanted to do, but his heart is so merciful, and his arms were wide open, and it's just, Luke just says he welcomed the crowds. And once they were settled, he began preaching them to them. He, he proclaimed the kingdom of God to them, and he healed all of their diseases. Again, gospel, power, glory. It was his pattern everywhere he went. Preach, heal, bring glory to God. It was his pattern all the time. The day was growing long, though, now, and night was beginning to set in, and the disciples are a little concerned because there's so many people and really no food. So they said, Lord, I think it's time for the ministry event to be over. <laughs> And I think we need to send these people away because we're kind of out here in the middle of nowhere. There's no food. It's going to cause problems. And the Lord said a stunning thing. You know what he said. You probably know the story. He said, well, why don't you all feed them? And the disciples gave this faith-filled response. They said, huh? What are you talking about? I mean, really, we got five loaves of bread and two fish. Put yourself in their point of view. You got two walleyes. And for me, sourdough's my favorite. So five loaves of sourdough from Diamond City Bread over here. That's all you got. Luke tells us there's about 5,000 men there, plus women and children. How's this going to work? They literally said to the Lord, listen, unless we go to the store, unless we go down to the market and get food, this isn't going to work. But the Lord in his mercy didn't get into a debate with them. He just said, listen, here's what I want you to do. Have everybody sit down in groups of about 50 so there's a, around 500 groups of men and who knows how many others. But whether the disciples understood what Jesus was about to do, they obeyed him, they had everybody sit down. Once everybody was seated, Jesus took their very meager provisions, he looked up to his father and he blessed them, and then he broke the bread just as he had done at the day of the Lord's Supper. He broke the bread and he passed it out and people began to eat and they continued to eat and they continued to eat and they continued to eat and Luke just says that they ate until they were satisfied. I take that to mean that everybody didn't just get a little crumb. People were able to eat enough that they actually were full. They were satisfied. Jesus cared about their spiritual well-being he also cared about their physical well-being. And when he did this miracle, he met all of their needs. And in fact, he did such a good job of meeting all their needs that there were leftovers. And when they gathered the leftovers, guess how many baskets were left over? Precisely 12 baskets. Do you think that's an accident? How many apostles had he just appointed? How many apostles was he in the midst of training how many apostles was he trying to teach the way of life that he had lived, of utter dependence upon his father, of preaching the gospel, of healing out of the compassion of his heart, and of bringing glory to God? There were exactly 12 apostles, 12 baskets, 12 apostles, 12 lessons about what it means to live by faith, 12 lessons that when we fix our eyes on Christ and depend upon his power, the impossible becomes possible. Beloved, Christ was teaching them a way of life. From the beginning of chapter 9 until now, he had these guys in training mode. And his training program was not just about teaching them techniques. It wasn't just teaching them strategies for how to grow a ministry. His school of ministry was about becoming like the master of the school. He wanted them to be like him. He wanted them to live the kind of life that he lived. So just as the Father had granted him power and authority guess what? He granted them power and authority. 
Just as the Father had given him all that he needed to preach and to heal, so Jesus gave them all that they needed to preach and heal. Just as Jesus drew away to feed upon the glory and the words and the will and the ways of his Father, so he taught his disciples, draw away, draw upon God, be near to God. When you're weary, go to your Father for rest. Just as he listened to the Father's every word and obeyed his every command, Jesus is now training the disciples. You draw near to me, you listen to me, and when I speak, you do. And when you get the order of these things right, miracles begin to happen. I hope you can see that he's doing more than training them in techniques and strategies. He's trying to shape a way of life in them. And that way of life mainly has to do with walking in fellowship with God. That's what it's really about. Around that same time, Jesus was praying privately and the disciples were with him. For whatever reason, he took this opportunity to ask them who the crowds thought that he was. And just as we had heard earlier in the chapter, Luke again repeats, they thought he was either John or Elijah or one of the prophets of old raised from the dead. And so I think the Lord asked them this for their sake to pique their curiosity. Now he got them thinking and now he has them thinking. And he asked them, well, but who do you say that I am? You've been walking with me. You know me better than the crowds. You've been closer to me. You've slept with me. You've eaten with me. You've done ministry with me. You've laughed with me. You've cried with me. So who do you think that I am? And Peter, moved by the Holy Spirit, says what you know that he said. He said, you are the Christ of God. You are the appointed Messiah who has been prophesied from centuries before who would come to deliver God's people. Peter had the answer absolutely right, but his conception of the Christ was absolutely wrong. And so Christ began to confront this conception in in verse 22, if you'll look there. He says to his apostles, and maybe a, a, a broader group of disciples, but I don't think to the crowds, he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. He cannot just die. He has to be killed and on the third day be raised. And then after saying that, all right, so the vision is Christ is talking to those that he's training, and now if you look at verse 23, you'll see that he turns to everybody. Now he's speaking to everybody who's coming to follow him, and I feel like I am now in that crowd. He said to all, means, I think, he said to all who came after him, including those of us who were in this room in 2014, and here's what he said. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words Of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Beloved, Christ is still in training mode. He knows that his disciples aren't going to understand everything that he's saying, but he wants to begin issuing the command that to know him is to follow him. You can't just claim to have a relationship with Jesus and not actually follow Jesus. You can believe in him in the way that somebody believes in a a teacher that they admire, but you can't believe in him in the sense of having eternal life until you lose everything and follow him. 
To know him is to take up your cross, to deny yourself, to die to this world and follow Jesus. To know him is to shift your allegiance, radically shift your allegiance from everything else to Christ. This issue of taking up our cross is more complicated than that, but that's the heart of it right there. The heart of it is a radical shift of allegiance. You want to follow me? Don't just come for the benefits that you get from me. Crowds, don't just come for the healing and the food. You need to come because you love me. You need to come because you long to see my glory. When I come with my Father and with his holy angels, you must die to everything in order to gain me. Your allegiance must shift. Beloved, he's in training mode, and he's saying you want to bear fruit in life? Then shift your allegiance to me. It was exactly eight days later, Luke tells us, so a week and a day later, that Jesus decided, moved by the Spirit of God, to take only three of his apostles up onto that sacred mountain with him. He took Peter, he took James, and he took John. And I don't know exactly all the wisdom and ways of God. He consults his own wisdom, and that's good enough. He doesn't need to consult us. I do know later that Peter, James, and John became the three main leaders of the first generation of the church. They became what Paul called the pillars of the church. And Christ chose them because it was in his heart to choose them. For now, it was only them, and he brought them up on top of that mountain. It wasn't time for all 12 apostles to see the glory of Christ in this way. It wasn't time for the crowds to see the glory of Christ in this way. It wasn't time for the nations of the earth to see the glory of Christ in this way. But it was time for these three to see his glory. And Jesus did this, not just to show off, But because he was trying to shape a way of life in them, he is still in training mode. And he's trying to teach them something that will radically shape their lives, will bring so much fruit from their lives that will last forever that at this point they had no way of imagining it. And I would simply summarize the lesson like this. Gaining sight of the glory of Christ is the key to bearing fruit in life. He's training apostles to be in ministry with him. In other words, he's training people to bear fruit. And this is the lesson he's trying to teach up on that mountain. Gaining sight of the glory of Christ is the key to bearing fruit in life. It would not be exaggeration to say that it's the key to everything in life. Unless we have the sight of the glory of Christ, beloved, everything else is meaningless. Meaningless. We must have the sight of the glory of Christ for anything else in life to have meaning. Now, most of us are not like the apostles, and what I mean by that is that most of us are not called to drop everything and go into full-time vocational ministry. God calls some people to do that, but not most. For most of us, he has different kinds of callings, but whoever knows Christ has a calling upon his or her life to know Jesus and to make Jesus known, to behold his glory and to proclaim his kingdom in one way, shape, or form. And so the lesson that Jesus taught there that day is a lesson that he has us here to teach us today. Believe me, this lesson is for us. Gaining sight of the glory of Christ is the key to bearing fruit in life. Is your joy in Christ down? It's because your sight of Christ is blurry. Is your fruit in life down? It's because your sight of Christ is obscured. Why it's obscured is something you need to go before the Lord and figure out. But I promise you that the key to bearing fruit is being gripped by the presence and the power of Jesus Christ on a daily basis. And the reason I think Christ talked about cross-bearing at this particular moment in time 
was because in order to see his glory, we must take up our cross. We must forsake our will and our ways in order to gain his will and his ways. In order to see his glory, we must even share in his suffering. If you'll keep a finger there in Luke, and please turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. I want to direct your attention to some of the Apostle Paul's words because I find his words helpful to help me understand what it really means to take up the cross on a daily basis. He helps me understand the path of actually gaining sight to the glory of Christ. The Apostle Paul said, Philippians 3, verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. His degrees, his pedigree, his possessions, his relationships, his dreams, his hopes, his everything in this world, he counted as nothing more than loss. Why? Because he saw a greater treasure, and that is Jesus Christ. And he wanted Christ, by the grace of Christ working in his heart, he wanted Christ more than he wanted anything else. And so he said, for his sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness that depends on faith just believing in Jesus looking to Jesus hoping in Jesus seeking Jesus clinging to Jesus that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When I contemplate this passage, I see that in order to gain the greatest treasure in life, we have to die to all other treasures, and sometimes that's just flat painful. There is a war happening, not just in the world, but inside of our hearts, and that war is about who we will give our allegiance to. If we will give our allegiance to ourselves, to the world, to the kingdom of darkness, we cannot follow Christ. If we will transfer our allegiance to Christ, he will give us the power to do it. But beloved, there will be a war involved. There will be a death involved. A a cross will have to be born. We talk often about, oh, I'm having this difficulty at work. It's just my cross to bear. I don't think that's what Christ was talking about when he said take up your cross daily. I think he was talking about dying to yourself and shifting your allegiance from whatever you're aligned with to him. And then, of course, when you're in him, he might give you a commandment. He might, he might include you in his mission on this earth in such a way that causes you to suffer, like our beloved brothers and sisters in northern Iraq and northern Syria right now who are clinging to Christ and suffering tremendously, but in that they are also sowing the seeds of a weight of glory that nobody will ever know but them. In order to know Christ and all his glory, beloved, we have to bear the cross. There's just no other way. And believe me, the aim of Jesus in cross-bearing is that we would see his glory. Listen to what he prayed in John 17, 4. He's praying to his Father. John 17 is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. It's the only place we get a glimpse into the prayer life of Jesus and the Father where we hear his actual words that he spoke to the Father. And here's what he said near to the end of that prayer. He said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory that you have given me because you love me from before the foundation of the world. 
The sight of the glory of Christ, beloved, was not just for the three disciples up on the mountain that day. Their experience that day was a prefiguring of the experience that everybody who knows Jesus Christ has and will have. Gaining the sight of the glory of Christ is the key to bearing fruit in life. It is indeed the key to everything in life. The glory of Christ is the beginning and the end of Jesus' training plan for his disciples. It is the fuel and the goal of missions, as Pastor John Piper has said. It is the fuel of joining with Jesus in his quest to seek and save the lost in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and among the nations. Without the sight of the glory of Christ, all purposes and plans, all structures, all strategies, all growths and all gains are literally meaningless, beloved. It means nothing. You can grow a massive ministry, but without the glory of Christ, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The house that God is building is a house that's built on the glory of Christ and built for the glory of Christ. And if you think I'm making that up, look at Hebrews chapter 3 and you will see. Christ is the center of all. And like the 12, beloved, we need Jesus to give us all that we need to do his will in this world. But the center of what we need is the sight of the glory of Christ. After the Lord had shown his glory to these apostles on top of the mountain, several important things happened and several important things were said, especially in the beginning of chapter 10 there where he again now sends out 72 more disciples and goes into sort of round three of the training process. But I'm gonna leave you on your own to look at the rest of chapter nine and then chapter 10 and chapter 11. And I wanna talk for the few more minutes that we have here about what it might look for us to behold the glory of Christ here today, here in Elk River. The Lord most likely isn't gonna take us up onto a mountain. There aren't many mountains around here anyway. But he's most likely not even gonna take us out into the woods and visibly show us his glory. But he is calling us to gain the sight of the glory of Christ. And of course, this is something that he does, but we have a part to play. So please turn with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter three. This is a familiar passage to many of you, but I want to make sure to draw your attention here, and perhaps you can meditate on this more on your own. So we'll look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I want to just read verses 16 through 18. It would be good if you had the time to meditate on this whole chapter, but I'll start at 16. Paul writes, but when one turns to the Lord, when a person shifts their allegiance, when a person believes in Jesus Christ, the veil is removed. And he was talking about the veil that Moses put over his face to shield people from the glory of God. When you turn toward Christ, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord Jesus is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom for what? Verse 18. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The way that we are shaped into the image of Christ is by beholding the glory of Christ. That's how it works. And the way that we gain the sight of the glory of Christ is by seeking him and savoring him day by day. The apostle John, who was up on that mountain, who saw the vision of glory, said in 1 John chapter three that the destiny of all believers is to see Jesus in that same way, but in complete fullness and without any admixture of, of holding back. You know, the dial is turned all the way up and forever we will behold the glory of Christ face to face. That's our destiny. And John said that when that happens, we'll be completely transformed into his image because we're gonna see him as he is. 
But here on this earth, that same process takes place. As we behold Jesus day by day by day, we are transformed from, his, from one degree of glory to another into his very image, into his image. For now, it's possible for a person to catch a brief and incomplete sight of the glory of Christ. I would not put it past Jesus in some way, shape, or form to literally show his glory to somebody. Like me, you've probably heard stories of Muslims in the world today that are having dreams and seeing visions of Jesus that, that are just amazing of how Christ himself is being a missionary in countries that we can't get into. I would not put that past Jesus. And I don't see any reason why he could not do that or would not do that. But I think for the most part, our, our calling in our day is not to behold him by sight like that, but it's to behold him by faith. And the way we behold Christ by faith is in two ways. And believe me, beloved, these two ways are real. When you behold Christ by faith, you do behold Christ. Two ways. First of all, the Bible teaches us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands, right? The other morning, I was up early, read the Bible for a little bit, went into my kitchen, had a lot to do. I was, I was starting to get busy, starting to get focused. The RPMs were starting to ramp up in my heart. I look out the window, and God totally distracts me, completely distracts me. There the sun is coming up. The light is beaming underneath and through the clouds. Rays are separating in such a glorious way. There's all these hues of pinks and whites and blues. And I literally was just stopped in my tracks. I was so moved that I took a picture with my phone and put it up on Facebook and put Psalm 19 up there because I was just taken by the glory of God in Christ. The Bible teaches us that the Father created all things through the Son. So that morning when I was beholding that sunrise, I was beholding the handiwork of Jesus. And he gave me faith not just to see a sunrise, but to see his glory displayed in his handiwork. And it took my breath away. And beloved, if you'll have eyes to see, you will see him in the stars and in the sun. You'll see him in the lakes and in the trees. You'll see him in the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. You'll see him in the people who are made in the very image of God. If you'll have eyes to see, you will see the handiwork of Christ in creation. And I pray that we will not just see what we're seeing, but that we'll see what Jesus is revealing about himself through creation. There is a way that you get a palpable, visible sight of the glory of Christ when you see creation revealing him. Second way, and I think a more important way, that we behold the glory of Christ is by reading his word and meditating on his attributes in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So as we sit with our Bibles open in the presence of the Spirit, he instructs us by his word, and more importantly, he reveals to us the glory of Jesus. The other day I was in the midst of writing something, a, a, a blog post that I might end up putting in the bulletins in a few weeks, and that just the train of thought made me go to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and there I contemplated for about an hour the seven attributes of Jesus that are lifted up there. And I had a lot of things on my mind that day, things I had to do, things that were heavy on my heart, things I was excited about. And I'm, and I'm telling you the truth, for that hour, God took me on such a journey that I just forgot about all of it. Near the end of the time, I realized that I had forgotten about everything that was on my plate for that day. I was just taken by the glory of Christ. In, in only 72 words, these things are revealed to us about Jesus, that he that God the Father appointed him to be the heir of all things, that God the Father created all things through Jesus, 
that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, that Christ is the exact imprint or the representation of the nature of God, that Christ upholds the whole universe by nothing more than the word of his power. Who do you know that's got power like that? That Christ made purification for sins so that we can be forgiven by believing in him. And what priest do you know that offers the sacrifice and is the sacrifice and is the one who receives the glory for the sacrifice? What an amazing priest we have. I learned that Christ is the forever seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, which means that he is the king of kings who will be enthroned forever. And beloved, as I beheld these things in the presence of the Holy Spirit, I beheld the glory of Christ by faith and I was changed. Even when I sort of came back to my mind about what I had to do that day, I felt differently. I thought differently about what I had to do that day. It transformed even my vision of other things. And this, to me, is the primary way we behold the glory of Christ, contemplating his word and the power of the Holy Spirit. And this brings us back to the issue of the cross. Are you willing to die to other things so that you'll have the time to meditate on Christ through his word? Or are you more interested in your smartphone and your games and your shows and your hobbies and your habits than you are in beholding Jesus? Are those things more valuable to to you than he is? And if they are, I just want to call you today by the mercy of Jesus Christ to forsake those lesser things and give your time to Christ. It will take time. We live in a nano-microwave kind of culture, don't we? We want everything we want, and we want it right now, but Christ doesn't work this way. To see his glory will take our time because he's a person revealing himself to us, and as a person, he wants to receive us. He wants to hold us. He wants to open our eyes little by little by little to behold his beauty, his glory, his plans, his purposes. It will take time, so take up your cross, beloved. If you want to behold the glory of Christ, you have to die to everything else in this life. You have to change allegiances. When I was about to marry Kim, which later this month will be 23 years ago, November 29th, 1991, we got married. I had to stop dating other women. It tends to be good for a marriage when you forsake other loves, right, (laughs) to get that love. But it was not exactly a sacrifice for me to stop spending time with other girls so that I could spend my life with this beautiful woman. There's been no sacrifice. What an unbelievable joy it has been to walk with a woman who loves Jesus more than me, who lives by faith, who points me to Christ, who shares in everything with me, the highs, the lows, the laughter, the tears, the everything of life, the everything of marriage. We even made a child together. What a beautiful thing. It was no big deal to die to other loves so that I could have a life with her. No big deal. Same thing with Jesus, but infinitely more so. It might feel painful, but beloved, it is the best exchange you could ever make to give up everything in order to gain Christ. And so I just want to close before I pray here by calling you once more to take up your cross, cross, die to other loves, give your time to Jesus. This is what it really comes down to. Give your time to Christ. If you'll be found in the presence of Christ, I promise you that when the time is right, He'll be clear with you. He'll give you a mission. He'll give you authority. He'll give you power. But really, the heart of it all is being near to him. The heart of it all is beholding his glory. Gaining sight of the glory of Christ is the key, really, to everything in this life. Let's pray and ask him to help us now. Father, my weak offering of this sermon is complete now. 
and I trust it into the hands of your spirit and I ask you to use your word to stir in the lives of your people and to effect change in us. I ask you to help us die to lesser loves that we might gain you. And I ask you to open our eyes to see the glory of Christ this very day. Lord, I ask you to help us taste the sweetness of what it means to walk with you and talk with you, to see you, to follow you. And I pray, Lord, that you would woo us. I pray that you would capture us. I pray that you would cause us from the depths of our hearts to want to do your will. And I thank you again for what you will do because you said that your word never goes out void. And so by faith, I thank you in Jesus' mighty and merciful name. Amen.